You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. Good evening and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Cock, and this program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. In it, I talk to someone who is a person of note and we listen to music of their choice. And I'm very happy to say that I have, uh, well, not a new author, but a renewed author on the program tonight, Tony Leon. Welcome. Thanks so much, Richard. Good to be with you tonight. It's great to have you on the program. And your latest book has come out about a month ago called Future Tense, uh, Reflections on My Troubled Land. How many books have you produced so far? Oh, this is my fifth, and you know, everyone has a different uh, purpose and cause, Richard. So this one was actually written during the lockdown last year, it kept me sane during that rather innovating process. And uh, I was asked by Jonathan Ball, my publisher, to produce a book which was a personal reflection of the many situations I'd been in in our political history, going right back to the early 1990s, and I'd been in the room, or several of them, you know, on some hinge of history moments like the Codessa negotiations, the first democratic parliament, the last tricameral parliament, and my interactions with all our presidents from de Klerk through Mandela to Thabo Mbeki, Zuma, and of course, Sir Ramaphosa. And then also because I was, as you know, the founding leader of the DA, and I was involved not just with that party, but after it set back in the 2019 elections, I was called in to help right-size the ship. And that uh, gets two chapters in the book. And I also looked at really what are the causes of the situation we're in, a rather negative situation. What were the economic and political uh, decisions that were made, many of them predating the current situation by decades. And I reflect on that and also some of the more consequential people and some obscure people who either progressed us or retarded us. And at the end of the book, I look into the future, my crystal ball, as it were, as to what I think it's likely to portend, given where we are. Yeah, and hence its title, Future Tense. Yes. Well, in 2008, when I produced my autobiography, On the Contrary, the last chapter was called Future Imperfect. But uh, (laughs) in the intervening 13 years, we've moved from imperfect to tense. I think that's probably (laughs) the correct uh, label. And your English teacher at school would have been proud of you that you knew the difference between future imperfect and future tense. I think it's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Tony, if I may call you Tony, how did you first get involved in politics? Well I, well, I came from a pretty political household. My late mother, Sheila, we grew up in Durban. Uh, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s there. Uh, was very involved in liberal causes, the Institute of Race Relations, Defence and Aid, a whole lot of different. Uh, the Progressive Party Foundation happened in our drawing room in Durban in 1960. So, uh, yeah, I, I grew up with it. And then I became, so I was conscientized, as they say, at a very early age. And then beyond just being aware of what was going on in the de- the deprivations of rights under apartheid, I also got very involved in the process. And um, when I was about 11 years old, a family friend of ours, Yanni Statler, who was then the leader of the progressives, came to Durban to contest a seat in Musgrave. And I was recruited into the youth wing of the progressives called the young progressives by a 
very impressive young man from Durban called Bobby Godsell, who of course went on to fame and fortune as a leading business figure in this country in later years. So I was immersed in it. And then uh, after the army, I went to Bits University, which was quite a radical place then and now. And I was really involved in student politics. And after I qualified as an attorney, when I was in my late 20s, I was elected to the Johannesburg City Council in 1986. And three years after that, elected to parliament. And that set the course of my life, or for much of it anyway. Fantastic. Well, that's given us a sort of brief overview. Let's go to your first piece of music now, which is uh, one of the arias from The Merry Widow. It's the wonderful singer Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. That was the wonderful Elizabeth Schwarzkopf singing one of the great arias from The Merry Widow by Franz Leha, the choice of Tony Leon, who's my guest in People of Note. Uh, Tony, perhaps I should ask you at this stage, what did you have any music in your background? Did you ever learn an instrument? Well, very badly, the recorder and the piano, and I was hopeless at both. But, you know, why I chose a Merry Widow, it was very much the background noise of oh, music, shall I say, of my childhood. My father was a great opera buff, really a, a profoundly interested uh, in, in operatic music. And although it's a light opera, obviously, my grandpa and my father were both, um, you know, devotees of uh, Leha and Schwarzkopf. Well, and uh, with justification, because she was a great singer. But I see there's some other interesting choices coming up here too, and you, you'll tell us about those in due course. One of, just what are you doing now, now that you've finished with politics and you've been an ambassador, what are you doing now, apart from writing books, that is? Or maybe that is so what you're I'm, doing. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I've, I've, you know, got to put bread on the table, as they say. I'm the chairman of a communications company called Resolve Communications. We do a lot of uh, strategic communications work for private sector companies and some industry-wide associations here and abroad. And so that keeps me quite busy during the week. And I, in addition to writing books, well, I only produced this one after an absence of about uh, eight years. I write four newspaper columns a month in the Business Day, Sunday Times, and Sunday Times Daily. So that uh, keeps my mind at least uh, in, in, in gear because you've got to always think of the next big thing to write about and try and make it less obvious than everything else that's in the public commentary. So that's, uh, that's quite an intellectual challenge every week. Yeah. And, and you live in Cape Town because one of the wonders of, of modern technology means that I can talk to you quite happily in Cape Town. And have you lived there a long time? If you say you come from Durban originally, have you lived in the Cape a long time now? Well, I have, but, uh, you know, I, I lived spent most of my life actually in Johannesburg, and I, that's where my political uh, constituency of Houghton was in Joburg, still is. Uh, but when I met my wife, who then was just my fiancé, and I decamped every Monday morning to go to Parliament, she, she's from Israel, and she said to me, look, this is not what I signed up for, that you, you depart on a Monday morning, come back <laughs> on a Friday evening. Uh, and I don't want a weekend husband. I want a seven-day-a-week husband. Fair enough. So we then moved full-time to Cape Town instead of commuting between Joburg and Cape Town in the year 2000. So I've been here, you know, over 20 years, although by Cape Townian standards, they're very snobbish in some ways. I've just <laughs> barely arrived, you know. <laughs> You'll yeah. be a couple of centuries. Johnny come qualify. lately. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, and obviously you enjoy it down there because it's a, a great place to be. I, I spent most of my youth in Cape Town. I now live in Joburg, so I know what Cape yes. Town is all about, and it's a great place to live. 
No, it is. Look, it's it's better administered than Joburg. It might not be saying much. I was a bit shocked. I was doing a book launch in Joburg the other night, and you know my car uh, really went through a pothole that was more like a donga. So at least they do repair the potholes here. <laughs> yeah, we well we we've learned to avoid them now. We're quite good at driving <laughs> up here. Now your second choice, I notice, is uh, a very interesting one. This is uh, Paul Robeson singing "Old Man River." Perhaps just put it in context for us and then we can play it. Well, first of all, I love musicals uh, of all sorts. In fact, there's uh, barely, apart from some of the more recent obscure ones, I, I, I love them. And so I suppose Jerome Kern, Old Man River was, was uh, my early musical conscientization. My dad, once again, <clears throat> used to sing along with Paul Robeson and that impressive baritone. And then when I began to read, and I read about everything, I, I, I read the biography of Paul Robes, an extraordinary man, I mean, political activist, actually a communist, and that song is so evocative of an era in the United States, and probably, uh, if you look at uh, Black Lives Matter today, it's not quite over, although it's obviously changed. Absolutely. And I mean, the, 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 if you listen carefully to the words, they're pretty hard hitting. Uh, this exactly. Is, yeah. This is Old yes. Man River, sung by the wonderful Paul Robeson. That was Old Man River with the great singer Paul Robeson. It's the choice of Tony Leon, who's my guest in People of Note, and he's just published a book called Future Tense, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Because one of the things... Uh, Tony, that you said, I think towards the end of the book, I read prophecy is useful, but not conclusive. And that's because uh, the last chapter you tried to prophesy a bit. Just tell us about that. Well, with a few disclaimers, such as what yeah, you yeah, just yeah. read out. Yeah. Um, I look at where we are and where we like to go. And, and I erect in the book, at least uh, in, 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 in written form, nine signposts into the future. Um, I would say, just to categorize them, six are fairly negative, three are very positive. And uh, it's a combination of things. So the politics is very toxic in this country. But on the other hand, there's no such thing as a natural party of government. And uh, on my uh, thumbnail sketch in the book, 30 years is when the liberation dividend has expired for many founding liberation parties elsewhere in the world and even in Africa. And I'm not sure the ANC in current form is going to be with us that much longer. Of course, there's then perhaps both a positive and negative as to what replaces the current setup. And I, I look at that as well. The real problem in South Africa is money or the lack of it uh, for the government because they've squandered uh, not just an inheritance that they got in terms of infrastructure, but they've spent like drunken sailors largely on, 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 on uh, current expenditure, especially public servants' wages, which have gone up astronomically uh, beyond the price of inflation. So just to give you one, for instance, that I mentioned in the book, when I started writing the book at the end of 2019, uh, the government was borrowing 1 billion rand every day to fund itself. And a year later, when I finished the book in December last year, i.e. three months ago, it was borrowing 2 billion rand a day for the same purpose. And we had no economic growth to speak of. In fact, negative because of COVID. So that puts South Africa into the jaws of a debt trap, which is something that the economic sensible people acknowledge, like Tito Mbaweni, and something that the insensible people, like the Radical Economic Transformation Brigade, uh, don't even address. 
So we can't go on the course that we're on and all the easier options that we did have available to us 10, 15 years ago are no longer there. So unless there's a course correction, the situation is going to be very dire and on all fronts. And the question is, can the government self-correct? No sign of it, but, you know, never say never. So a fair amount of the last chapter looks at that. Uh, but then, you know, going to prophecy, I do tell the story. It's entirely true that when I was in Parliament uh, at the end of the old era in 1993, I went to a presentation by the then Minister of Post and Telecommunications who said that they reckon some, only between 500 and 900,000 South Africans would use a cell phone when it arrived in South Africa in 1994. Well, today there are 100 million SIM cards in circulation here. So you can't project from the past into the future. And the dilemma always is that all our information comes from the past, but all our decisions, of course, are about the future. The, the big positive for me in this country, despite everything, despite a government that tries to control everything and really can't do very much, is the what you might call the non-government sector. I've called it, borrowing George H.W. Bush's phrase, a thousand points of light. The civil society movements, the private sector, the uh, engagement by people, ordinary people, who do extraordinary things in times of need. That is South Africa's great hope. And if you look at that, you can feel encouraged. If you look at everything controlled by the state, you feel discouraged. But we mustn't give up. I think that's my final message. Yeah. Well, I, I want to come on to that civil society thing in a moment, but let's listen to your next choice of music, which is uh, Maria Callas singing uh, the Habanera from Bizet's Carmen. That was the wonderful voice of Maria Callas singing the famous Habanera from Car uh, Bizet's Carmen. Tony, just while we're on the subject of Maria Callas, and there are quite a few uh, great singers on the program, um, when you, I presume you travel a bit, when you go abroad, do you ever go to opera, you know, something you've caught from your father, maybe a love of opera or not? Oh, absolutely. And the selections here are all operas I've actually attended. And well, let me just say about Common, I, I love the Habanera long, long before I ever saw it in action, if you like, and I did subsequently see the opera in Cape Town, a very good production. But why I chose it here is BC, as I call it, before COVID arrived. My wife and I went to Verona to see one of these spectacular operatic productions. Uh, in fact, it was uh, Aida. And while we were in the town of Verona, which is very beautiful, as you know, we, there was a Maria Callas exhibition, and the, which was fantastic. It was about four years ago. And the centerpiece of the exhibition was a film of Callas singing the Habanera at a concert. I think it was the Olympia in Paris. And it, you know, having loved the aria anyway, and then seeing her, this black and white uh, film of Callas was just mesmerizing. It was actually, in some ways, better than this spectacular production of Aida. So it's got a very special place in my heart, that. All right, then I just want to go back from something you said before. You mentioned that the uh, public servants in South Africa are actually paid uh, very well, the civil service. And I read somewhere, it, it may even have been in your book, that the, the average um, civil service salary is about 40% higher than the equivalent in the private sector. And, oh, absolutely. But That's where, correct. And the other... Yeah, well, I was sorry, just going to say, other. where does this come from? Because in days gone by, civil servants were usually paid below the public sector rate. Absolutely. It comes from the strength of Kasatu, which, of course, the ANC is heavily reliant on to deliver votes on election day. 
And that's why, you know, 60 cents of every rand the government spends is either public servant salary or paying the debt. And the debt, the money is borrowed to pay the public servant. So we're in a hopeless economic mess because of that. And um, one of the other rather alarming figures in my book is that 29,000 public servants receive more than a million rand a year. And as you know, um, not, it's not everyone, but the public service is pretty dysfunctional, but that doesn't affect their salaries, their life occupancy of jobs. And it's not the way that you can build an economy because that kind of expenditure just crowds out the private sector, never mind the comparative between what private sector payers and what public sector payers. But do you think the, the crunch will come eventually when there is no more money? What happens then? Well, I think we're seeing it now. And, you know, once again, going back to my old friend, and he is an old friend of mine, Tito Mbaweni, he basically said in the February budget, that's two months ago, he said we're going to have effectively a three-year wage freeze on public service salary increases. But, you know, the government tends to reverse course at the first sign of trouble. So if they stick to that, then I think we've got a chance of getting out of the hole that they have dug us into. If they don't, then we don't have a chance of getting out of that fiscal black hole. And just to follow on from that, um, you, you said uh, briefly that, you know, the 30 years is the general life of a sort of uh, liberation movement in government. What uh, do you think there's a chance of the ANC splitting? Well, it has split already. The only difference is that they split and stayed under one roof. It's rather like a divorced couple who choose to occupy the same house. And there's very good reason for that, because the ANC brand, despite being somewhat tattered and tarnished, is still very strong every five years on election day. So they, as I say in Afrikaans, there's a fight over the boodle, you know, who's going to get the estate. And um, so it has split. Whether the split will be formalized in the way previous splits in the ANC with the formation of Copen and the EFF, who actually left the party and started a separate one, is, I think, a matter of conjecture. And it's not clear whether it will, but that party is absolutely irreparably divided at the moment, but it's still in one place. You know, I mentioned at my book launch in Cape Town with Judge Dennis Davis that if you go back in the history of South Africa to the days of white politics, P.W. Boerter doesn't get many uh, credits for understandable reason. But the one thing he did when he launched and didn't complete a reform program is he basically expelled the conservative wing of his own party, led by Trinex, out of the party, forced them out. I haven't seen Ramaphosa having any appetite to do that, but it might happen anyway, despite his disinclination to divide his party. Yeah, well, and there may come, I mean, with the latest um, uh, split with Mr. Mahashula, maybe there's uh, something else hovering in the background there. But let's, let's listen to something from the Tales of Hoffman. Now, this is music by Offenbach, and it's the famous Barcarolle. That was the Barcarolle from the Tales of Hoffman by Offenbach, the choice of Tony Ball. Ugh, I beg your pardon. I was looking at Jonathan Ball Publishers, Tony Leon, <laughs> who's my guest. And I was just going to say that his book, which is called Future Tense, is published by Jonathan Ball Publishers. It's available. It's 275 Rand. And uh, you can get it at, I guess, all good bookshops. Is that true? Yes. Yes. It is. Well, hopefully, and if it's not there, please demand it, because they should be stopping <laughs> it right now. Yeah, and it's moving off the shelves quite fast, so uh, rather get there sooner rather than later. And 
uh, we're talking about what the book is about and some of it, Mr. One of the interesting things you said, because I was at your book launch in Joburg, was that uh, our current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, is rather like uh, a sort of doctor who used to come to your house who had a good bedside manner. Just expand on that a bit. Yes, well, and, and I drew that from a, a gathering I attended when Cyril was on the platform in New York three years ago. And, you know, he's, he's got a very reassuring tone. He speaks very well. He's, uh, he's financially and in all other sense of the word, highly literate. So you feel quite comforted by him. But the diagnosis is pretty poor. And he doesn't really address uh, the current problems with any sense of dispatch or urgency and goes into a whole blame avoidance mold, which we've seen in Senti with this vaccine rollout or the non-rollout of vaccines, you know, vaccine apartheid, he blames uh, supply chain issues. It all could have been sorted in the middle of last year instead of his government banning slip slops, cooked chicken, cigarettes and alcohol, which they seem to prefer to actually getting on with their core function, which is to keep us safe. And so I think there's a huge disconnect between the reassurance that Sir Ramaphosa projects, which he does extremely well, uh, because he's a, you know, he's an emotionally intelligent man, and the actual results on the ground, which are pretty dire. Yeah, and and I think our rollout so far is about 250,000. And uh, in his speech a couple of uh, weeks ago, he was saying, uh, you know, by the by mid-April, we will have covered all the health workers. Well, this is pretty slow by any standards, I think. Well, let me tell you, he's 75% off target on even the health workers, only 1.2 million out of a population of 60 million. And then all these fatuous promises that are going to 40 million by the end of the year, as Tony Soprano said, forget about it. It's just not going to happen. Look, once again, you know, if they allow the private sector to get involved, discovery and the medical aids, you can rest assured that the thing would move along very fast. But they've got almost a neuralgic obsession about keeping everything under central control, even though central control does not function properly or at all. Yeah. Well, we'll see how that rolls out over the next uh, few weeks and months. But your next choice is a wonderful one. This is the famous Louis Armstrong and Mac the Knife. What a great singer. That was Louis Armstrong with Mac the Knife from the Thrippany Opera by Kurt Weill. And could I could just say that that, if I might just interrupt uh, uh, just for one second, um, that was really a great favorite for my late mother, Sheila, and she also was had a very strong musical uh, interest and so inculcated it in me, but I was a bit of a late developer. So while my brother caught the musical and the operatic bug early on, I took many years later, but now I also have it. And um, that's in the next piece, which was her favorite, uh, really are also from my childhood. Yeah. So when you, when you were growing up in Durban, I mean, apart from the, the politics in your home, um, was there, you, I mean, you've talked about your, the fact that your father loved opera. Were there musicians who visited your home as well? Well, I don't recall musicians. I do remember, though, as at a very early age, being sat down in front of the record player, whatever it was then called. Radiogram. <laughs> Radiogram. We had to listen to Peter and the Wolf. You know, that was introduction for all children yeah. to get into music. And then my ma would take us to rehearsals in the Durban City Hall of the orchestra, 
and you, so there was a lot of there was a, a lot of musical appreciation. Not that I had much interest in it. I was much more interested in what passed for pop music in South Africa in those days. But it it just registered with me. And so when I did become much more musically aware later on in my life, there was a sort of hinterland that my parents had created. Yeah. All right. I want to come back for a moment, if I may, to civil society, because we've seen around the world recently sort of society getting itself organized. Uh, and I think with Black Lives Matter, with people protesting about things in all over Europe, in uh, the Ukraine and so on. Uh, we haven't got to that stage, I don't think yet, of actually taking to the streets. And I'm quite interested why not, because we have quite a lot to complain about. We do. Look, there are a lot of protests in South Africa. A lot of them are in the rural areas, which are far worse served than the urban areas. And the municipal governments there are much more dysfunctional than even, you know, the worst of the metros in, in, in the cities. So I think some of them are sort of, as you as we would say, off screen, but but they're happening. I, I think the critical point at what will there be an explosion? And one of the chaps in my book, uh, Richard, deals with uh, an encounter with a very interesting individual whom I know quite well, Maletzi Mbeki, the younger brother of the more famous Toba, who's got a very critical view of how the government's misconducted itself and says basically the ANC government's like a child playing with a hand grenade and sooner or later it's going to explode and we'll all be damaged by it. And he projects that there will be an Arab Spring moment in South Africa. He thought it would be round about now. It hasn't happened um, for various reasons. It might not happen, hopefully. But I think it's certainly something to put into the future scenarios for our country. Yeah. Um, because I, I find it quite interesting when you see all these big protests around the world that actually we've never had one of those giant protests like that. We may have had in the old yeah. days. Um, but I just, um, it's interesting to, to note that. And let's go to your next choice now, which is the Piano Concerto in C-sharp minor by Poulenc, the French composer. This is the slow movement. And uh, I think you said earlier that this was another of your mother's favorites. Correct. Here it comes. That was the slow movement from the Piano Concerto in C-sharp minor by Francis Poulenc, the French composer, the choice of Tony Leon, who's my guest in People of Note. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027 with me, Richard Cock. It's broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. And as you may have noticed, I'm talking to someone of note. And in this case, it's Tony Leon, whose book, latest book, has just come out. It's called Future Tense. It's published by Jonathan Ball Publishers, 275 Rand, at a bookshop near you. And uh, congratulations, Tony, on the book, because uh, I read it, and it, it's quite an easy read. I mean, it's quite tough stuff that you're talking about, but it's an easy read, and I, I read it over a weekend, and I certainly enjoyed it. Have, have your other five books had similar uh, sort of success to this one? Well, the most successful book I had was my second book. Well, the first one was just a collection of essays and speeches, so I suppose, you know, that was when I was leader of the DP. The second one, when I stood down as leader of the Democratic Alliance, was called On the Contrary. That came out in 2008. And obviously, I was very front and center of the South African political stage at that point. So I guess that got a lot of interest. And I was telling some of the background stories of uh, the formation of the opposition in, in its current form in South Africa and... A little, a little bit of personal history, 
So, so that did very well. My next book was a much lighter read. It was called The Accidental Ambassador. It's about my period in South America as an ambassador. And I, that that's reached an audience that my other book had not because it was really non-political. My next book uh, after that was just after Nelson Mandela died. And that was called Opposite Mandela, which was really a view of Mandela from the opposition benches because we had a very close relationship and also an adversarial one. And because Mandela was a genius at personal interactions, he managed to bridge a lot of divides in our society and just in the political space that we both operated in. And, and that, that did well. But this book really is a the first time I've actually looked at where we are, where we're going, and once again personalized it. Because as Jonathan Ball, my publisher, said, look, there are plenty of books with a lot of stats and facts. And my book has got quite a lot of those, 400 footnotes, I fear. But they have all at the back, you don't have to read them. But uh, so it's accurate uh, to the extent anything is accurate, but also because I, I was, I can tell you the color of the tea, as it were, in certain rooms. And I had these privileged or just fortunate enough to have been in the room. So, you know, I tell about these encounters with Vladimir Putin, personal one on ones with Jacob Zuma, uh, my appreciation of, you know, the difficulties of building an opposition and what went wrong in the DA in recent times which I was heavily involved in. So it's not just a book of analysis or facts or projections. There is a personal element, which I think gives it some color rather than the normal black and white that you get. And hopefully that makes it more interesting. And as you generously suggested, Richard, accessible. Yeah. And just on that personal level, I see your next choice is a wonderful piece called Jerusalem of Gold, Yerushalayim Chelj Zahav. And this obviously has some personal connection because you are from a Jewish background. Yes, and I married an Israeli, and this was very anthemic, this song. It was very much the song that Israel embraced after the Six-Day War in 1967, when it became almost the national anthem. But, uh, you know, it very goes back to my first encounters with the woman who is now my wife in Israel, and uh, she subsequently moved to South Africa. So it, it means a lot to us both. Here it is, Jerusalem of Gold. That was Jerusalem of Gold, Yerushalayim Chel Zahav by Hannah Tsur, the choice of Tony Leon, my guest in People of Note. Tony, you've mentioned several presidents, so I just want to take up the matter of presidents for the moment. Do you think Mandela, because if we look before Mandela and as well after Mandela, he was almost like an odd man out in in a gallery of sort of roguish people. Yeah, well, not all of them are rogues. I, look, no. I do have some appreciation. There's a chapter about the first president I encountered when I first got to Parliament, F.W. de Klerk, who's got a rather, um, has got a rather like a prophet in his own land. He's not highly regarded either by the people he uh, helped advance, which obviously were the disenfranchised majority, and the people he represented, the white minority, who many of whom regard him as a sellout, so I think he had a complicated role, but he certainly was a change maker of a profound sort. But Mandela had really genius aspects to his leadership. I wrote, as I mentioned, a whole book about him. But, you know, he, he was a trans transformational figure in the best sense of that word. Uh, but he was the right man at the right time. I, I think Mbeki had a very mixed bag. In fact, I've got a chapter in the book called Mbeki's Mixed Bag because he was economically very, I think, sound and in some ways quite brave. 
But uh, the other aspects of his presidency were semi-disastrous, ranging from AIDS to Zimbabwe and several points in between because the complexity of his personality. Uh, you know, the next president of, well, because there's one in between, uh, Motlante, but he was just a stopgap, was Zuma. And he started off quite well, mainly because he wasn't in Becky, and then it all deteriorated into the state capture years, which are also captured in the book. And Ramaphosa, well, you know, jury's out, as they say, yeah. Richard. Uh, so far, high expectations at the beginning, dashed expectations at the midpoint of his first term. Yeah. And actually, my wife and I were discussing this after I'd read your book. We were saying we wondered if um, Mandela had a lot of time to think. He had a vision, I think, for South Africa. The other guys just seemed to be so busy doing stuff that really one feels they don't stop enough to think about what's going on. And if they thought more, they'd come up with perhaps something with more vision. Do you think that's fair? I think it's absolutely fair, and I think it's a profound point. And strange enough, in, in my many encounters with Mandela, a one-on-one encounter, not just what he was saying in public, he, I wouldn't say he hankered back, it would be quite inappropriate to say that, but, but he reflected in conversation about his time on what he called the island. And he did once say, it gave me time to think, exactly the point yeah, you made. Yeah. So he came out of prison, I mean, heaven knows, 27 years is an unbelievable period of incarceration, with a fully formed worldview, and he devolved from being a revolutionary to being a reconciliator in that period. And, you know, he was also he was also an upfront leader. He wasn't one of these people who hid behind a committee to make a decision, which you might say is Ramaphosa's great failing. So he started on his own secret negotiations with the then apartheid government, even though he was in prison, and he got the buy-in of his party later. So he was, the, I think the great thing about Mandela's leadership, leaving aside his emotional intelligence, was that he was uh, prepared to lead from the front. Yeah. Your next choice is uh, actually connected to the last one, which was Jerusalem of Gold. This is The Holy City by Harry Seacombe. Let's listen to it first, and then we'll talk about it. That was the great Harry Seacombe singing The Holy City. And it's the choice of Tony Leon, who's my guest in People of Note. Um, what a great song that is. And, you know, we, we, I perform it in concerts around South Africa, and it's amazing how the audience join in uh, because they all know that chorus. It's famous. Yes, and it's such an orchestral. And, and Seekham had the most, well, he was Welsh, I suppose, helped magnificent voice, as you just heard. Uh, so I chose that for two reasons. First of all, I went, although I'm, you mentioned I'm Jewish, which I am, I went to a Methodist boarding school, and I developed a, a deep attachment to hymns and choral pieces, a lot of other musical parts of our chapel-going experience. But why I really like that piece, apart from the magnificence of Seacombe's voice and the orchestra, is that it actually reminds us that Jerusalem, which I've spent many uh, year, or weeks in, Jerusalem is truly an international city. Uh, it is both a Jewish city, it's a Muslim city, obviously, and it's very much a Christian city. And you get that from this song. So I think the universalization of Jerusalem is uh, captured by putting those two songs back to back, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav and the Holy City. Yeah, and that was uh, one of the great singers. And, and I must say, we've produced some amazing singers in South Africa too. Who are, I, I know one of our, our tenors, um, given Nkosi, has sung quite a lot in Israel also. 
uh, under yes. the under the the patronage of a South African who's now living in Israel. So our singers have actually made it into all sorts of opera houses around the world and are doing extremely well. It's a fantastic export product that we have. And I mean, can I just mention, yes, if yes. I might, Richard, that given and Causey and Pretty Yendi, and certainly before she became universally famous, which she now is, were imported by us and my wife and I to Argentina when I was ambassador there to perform a series of concerts. Okay. Uh, yeah, and as part of our South Africa week, we had this amazing festival, and I'll, I'll deal with that later on with another selection that I've got on this playlist. And it was just wonderful, although Pretty Yendi lost her voice on the one occasion, but she more than made up for it when we had a South African naval ship in, in Harbin. She performed on the deck of it with Given and Corsi, and it was just a magical evening. Yeah. Just tell us about being an ambassador briefly, because one thing that interests me is you come from uh, the world of opposition politics, and yet when you're an ambassador, it's a slightly different position. Just tell us about that. Yeah, and I wrote a whole book explaining what it was like. So when I stood down as leader of the opposition and then as an MP in 2009, Zuma and I met, and he asked me if I'd like to do something of use to the state, and I didn't want to get reinvolved in domestic politics. There was some commission he wanted me to go into. And two of my colleagues had already been made ambassadors elsewhere in the world by Tabo and Becky, actually Douglas Gibson in Thailand and Sheila Kamra in Bulgaria, or and Sandra Buerta in the Czech Republic. So, you know, and I'd seen what they'd managed to do without becoming ANC hacks or just simply carrying on partisan politics that you could represent a country without representing a party. And I thought Argentina was the right place because there were no controversies in the bilateral relationship where I'd land up having to defend things I didn't feel comfortable with. And so it proved for all the three plus years I spent in Argentina. And, you know, someone said the definition of an ambassador is somebody who thinks twice before they say nothing. <laughs> uh, well, I have great difficulty in keeping quiet, as you've gathered on this program, Richard. But, I, yeah, I found it a fantastically interesting experience, challenging one. And we did a lot of things on the trade, tourism, cultural and uh, on the bilateral front, and I, it was a very immersive experience. Was it a one-off, or were you? could you have done another stint somewhere? Well, look, I, I did have some issues towards the end with our department, and particularly over some positions we were taking, so that rather um, would have, and, and uh, would have, I think, precluded, not that I, they offered me another person, nor did I ask for one. Yeah. And the other issue was, Bear in mind, I went in 2009, so state capture, the whole horror show of the latter Zuma period was in the future. But I was getting, starting to see some of the tea leaves in the cup. And I thought to myself, this presidency is going to start going into some very bad places. And I'm not sure that I would want to be part of that. Certainly in the early years of Zuma, it was all going quite well on the economic front, on the political front, on the rule of law front, but it started to decline rapidly afterwards. Yeah. Now, your next choice, you're going to have to tell us about Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks. Oh, I love this song, and it's very much part of my high school years. I also love Jacques Brel. I don't know people know that he actually wrote it, and the version by Terry Jacks is probably the best one. And it just, it, it's a period of time of my life when I was, you know, getting, uh, becoming a young adult or a late teenager 
and it very much reminds me of the 1970s and the descriptions in that song of someone really who's waiting to die and is reflecting on his life. I mean, I don't want to sound too maudlin, but it's done in a very beautiful way. Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks. That was Terry Jacks with Seasons in the Sun, the choice of Tony Leon, my guest in People of Note. And your next choice, of course, is uh, probably relevant to you. Uh, you've chosen My Way by Frank Sinatra, because I think actually over the years you certainly have done things in your own style and your own way. Absolutely. And the DA always used to play My Way when I sort of came on the stage and it very much became a sort of personal political anthem. I mean, it's a song of unspeakable arrogance, but some people would uh, <laughs> think that uh, that also was a description of part of my leadership set. Uh, but, you know, it, it very, also, once again, it's a song that I heard when I was, you know, at high school and it all seemed very sophisticated and here was this guy reflecting on his life and how he'd done things. I, I read subsequently that Frank Sinatra and I actually saw him perform it at Sun City in, I think, 1982 when he came here. And But I believe he couldn't stand the song, but, you know, it was ineradicably tied up with his whole singing persona. So he performed it. Yeah. Apparently, according to his daughter, not with great enthusiasm. <laughs> well, here it is. My Way with Frank Sinatra. The great Frank Sinatra singing My Way, chosen by Tony Leon, who's my guest in People of Note. That's a program you're listening to on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Koch, and this program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. So do join us on a Sunday evening. It's a nice time to sit and relax after a hectic weekend. And you can hear songs like uh, the Click Song, which is the one coming up next. Another iconic song, but for many different reasons and from a different part of the world, from Frank Sinatra. Yeah, and so uh, one of the re obviously that was you know in the early sixties and was also part of my growing up years that my parents used to play that. Um, but w what really, apart from you know the beauty of the song and the singer. Uh, many years later, when I was in Parliament, there was a dinner at Fernwood, the Parliamentary Country Club, as was in Cape Town. And I was seated next to Miriam McKeber, who by then, of course, was quite old, and but very delightful and, and very engaged human being. And so I did spend an evening with her, and I thought she was extraordinary. And then, once again, you know, her own background, you know, coming out of the townships, becoming famous overseas, becoming very much an icon of the anti-apartheid struggle, also getting involved in fairly radical politics because she married Stokely Carmichael, her US visa was withdrawn, and then coming back here and becoming a United Nations goodwill ambassador. So I think her storied life is also to some extent reflective of the journey South Africa's made. Yeah, and just to, to pick up on that, I mean, many of our singers, you mentioned earlier Pretty Yenda, she comes from Petra Tiff, uh, and yes. who would have thought that one of our great opera stars would come out of Petra Tiff? But it just shows that strange things do happen in life, and people come out of nowhere, and that's why I think you, you said that, you know, things are so unpredictable. One can never know quite what's going to happen next. But anyway, let's listen to the click song. Here it comes. This is Miriam Makeba. Miriam Makeba with the famous click song. And I think one of the things that you say in your book, um, Tony, and the book, by the way, for our listeners, is called Future Tense. It's 
published by Jonathan Ball Publishers and available at any good bookshop. And I can recommend it. It's a really good read. And and it's a an attractive read. You don't you know it's there's there is some dense stuff in it, but you get round that quite quickly because it's got a good flowing narrative. So there we are. Um, go and get it. It's a it's a good read, and it talks about past, present, and future. And uh, perhaps Tony, nine thousand days. Here was a a moment. Nine thousand days song from Invictus. Just tell us about that. Well, that's very meaningful. Uh, first of all, because that's the period of time Mandela spent in prison. Secondly, of course, that was the theme song from Invictus, the famous movie, uh, with Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon playing uh, Mandela and uh, Francois Pinot. Why it's meaningful to me, a very good friend of mine who's a, a famous journalist, John Collin, wrote the book. And secondly, in 2010, uh, in Argentina, we had the avant premiere of that in Buenos Aires, and through a very good friend of mine in Johannesburg, uh, Gavin Verigis, who chairman of the Rugby Legends, we brought across the late Joost van der Westhuizen, who was the famous scrum half of that winning 1995 Springbok rugby team in the World Cup, which of course is the subject of the film, and he gave a speech, which was a sensation, because Argentina is a rugby-loving country, and then we brought the whole ex-Springbok rugby, the late the class, uh, the Springbok legends, South African legends, to play an exhibition match at which F.W. de Klerk was our guest of honour to present the prize. So that song, apart from I think being a very beautiful song, really is a reminder of the golden moments of South Africa in the mid-1990s. So here it is, 9,000 days from the film Invictus. That was 9,000 Days from the film Invictus, uh, Overtone and Yolandi Norkia, the choice of Tony Leon, my guest in People of Note. Tony, the, one of the things that comes up in your book also is the small number of taxpayers who more or less keep South Africa afloat. Just briefly touch on that. Well, extraordinary. I mean, 125,000 South Africans are in the super tax bracket and pay a huge slice of the personal income taxes, which in turn is the biggest uh, source of government revenue. But uh, as I reflect in the chapter on the billionaires and millionaires, when these folks start leaving these shores, we have a big problem. And it's very difficult for people to get excited about 125,000 rich people. Uh, but actually, they are essential to the future progress of this country and to the government's uh, revenue base. And a lot of them have left the country. And a lot of them are very pessimistic about the future of the country. And they, being the most skilled, the most wealthy, are the most mobile. So, although it's a very unpopular topic in these days of radical economic transformation, they also need to be cosseted and appreciated. And I guess uh, the, the chapters in the book that deal with that is actually a reminder that you cannot have a successful country without a strong middle class, and particularly, if you like, financially an upper middle class. So I do examine that very closely, and I do sound some alarm bells on the regression of those folks. I mean, you know, one of the stories I tell in the book is South Africa has only five or six dollar billionaires in the whole country out of 60 million people. We went, uh, in days you could travel before... COVID about 18 months ago to Naples. It was a small town in the Gulf of uh, uh, Mexico and Florida, the state of Florida. 
And Naples, Florida has a population of 22,000, and there are 12 US dollar billionaires who have second homes there. So, uh, it's obviously an apple and orange comparison, but you know, it's a reminder that actually if you want a country that can do things, that can produce things, that can have a strong social safety security net for people in need, you need actually taxpayers who are producing income that the government can then uh, use for social purposes. And without that, you've got to borrow it. And we've seen, as I mentioned earlier in our program, Richard, just how extremely fragile South Africa's borrowing position is. Yeah. And yeah, that's uh, it's a, an interesting section of the book that, and I read it with uh, great interest. Now, your next choice um, is Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. I guess the connection is obvious, is it? It is. So first of all, I love musicals. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan and actually a friend of Peter Turin, who produced uh, Evita in South Africa. I actually wrote the program note for him about Argentina and Eva Peron. So, I, you know, once again, an example as Peter Turin's musicals and other productions of world-class South African performances and productions that we export literally to the world or did. So it's meaningful in that, obviously, because the song is evocative of Argentina and especially Eva Peron, who, you know, died at the age of 33 in 1952 and is still perhaps the most consequential figure in that country. And a lot of the problems in Argentina and very similar to Africa is people tend to look back, not forward. And I wrote, when I wrote my book on Argentina, I said, vote for a better yesterday. That's the offer of uh, Eva Peron's party, the Peronists, who still govern Argentina. And one could also say it's the offer of the ANC. They keep going back to apartheid rather than worrying about their appointment with the future. Yeah. So it's it's vision that we need. And, and uh, we were saying earlier that uh, Nelson Mandela had vision for the country and we, we've almost sort of lost our way somehow. And it would be good to go back for that. But just let's listen now to Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. This is uh, from Evita. That was Don't Cry For Me, Argentina from the musical Evita. Well, we're sort of, there are some green shoots um, after the lockdown. I've done a couple of concerts outdoors and I guess you were talking about Peter Turin. It will be great when uh, Theatre on the Bay is up and running again and these musicals are once again able to travel around the world. Are you seeing any green shoots in Cape Town? Well, I think we are. We, we, the great advantage of living in Cape Town is within 40 minutes or an hour, you can go to some beautiful places outside of the city that are coming to life. We were in Hermanus last weekend. We've been to a magnificent place called Rebeck Castile. We're actually the editor of my book. who was merciless editor, but a wonderful person. Tracy Hawthorne lives. Um, and we've been even to the Karoo to, uh, you know, look at various places there. So, you know, there is a kind of revival. People are very anxious to get out, especially during the summer time that we're still in, just about. You can sit outside, so it's uh, safe from a viral point of view. And uh, we have just so many opportunities. Look, the great thing about this lockdown, if there is one, is because we can't travel overseas, which I think some of us tended to do a bit, you've got to rediscover your own country and it is really a beautiful country to rediscover it certainly is uh, during lockdown i took a road trip 
with my daughter and granddaughter. We went down to the Cape, but via friends in the Karoo and Swellendam, there are some beautiful parts of South Africa Absolutely. around. Yeah. And uh, Tony, I don't know if you want people to write to me. If they want to write to you, are you happy uh, for me to give out your email address or would you rather they sent it to me and I can pass it on? No, please. Uh, my email address is info at tonyleon.com and I will absolutely answer every email or attempt to. It might take a bit of time, but I, I, I would welcome, especially, you know, people who have views, good, bad or indifferent about what I've written. I'm happy to engage on topic, as they say. Okay, so it's info at tonyleon.com and that's L-E-O-N. It's, it's very easy. Info tonyleon.com and We've been talking about the book which he's just produced called Future Tense. Uh, but there are, of course, are the other books that you've written still available? Yeah, I think uh, the book opposite Mandela is. Um, I, the Accidental Ambassador might be. I think the first two I wrote are out of print. That's on the contrary and uh, hope and fear. But I don't know, maybe some... Yeah. Antiquarian Bookshop has the first two, but but I think the the current one obviously is very available. The other two are still available. Yeah. Well, Future Tense is the current one. Jonathan Ball publishes 275 Rand at your local bookstore. Um, and we've just about come to the end of the program now, and I just want to say thank you, Tony, very much for being on the program. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, Richard. And uh, let me just say that uh, you are part of, you, you're in danger of becoming a national treasure. So uh, long may your, your baton continue to hold sway over audiences. Thank you very much. And just give your email address once more. Info at TonyLeon.com. There you are. And we're going to play out with uh, your last choice, which is Mango Groove and Special Star. Maybe you want to say something about it just before we play it. Absolutely. So this is a fantastic song. As you know, it's a sort of fusion song, which Mango Groove very much is a fusion group of Afro uh, township music and pop. And why I, I love it, apart from being such a fantastic song, is that, you know, in 1984, I think was the year Mango Groove was founded, Mango Groove did something that was very unusual. This is really, you know, the heyday of apartheid we're talking about, state of emergency and all that. And they um, were a multiracial group, black, white singers and, and musicians in it. And they performed, and often with quite a lot of difficulty because it was very difficult for black and white people to perform together, to be accommodated together, and they did it. And I think they laid a very good foundation. They've also endured all these years. They're still going. And that song uh, I first heard, would you believe it, They well, before they became famous, they used to perform, there was a sort of nightclub on a Sunday night in the Norwood Hypermarket. And we would go along and Mango Groove was a sort of resident band. It was just fantastic. Here it comes, Special Star. That was Mango Groove with Special Star, the last choice of Tony Leon, who's been my guest in People of Note. So it just remains for me to say uh, thank you to you, our listeners, for being on us uh, on our journey with us here on this program. And also, uh, once again, just to say thank you to Tony. Thank you, Tony. Thanks so much, Richard. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And okay. thank you for playing my favorite tunes. It's a great pleasure. And until next time, from all of us here at Classic 1027, we say a very good night and have a great week ahead.